Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. <clears throat> So this is the 10th chapter, the 10th week of our uh, structured study of the Dhammapada. This is called the Dandavaga. The subtitle is Abandoned Violence. Um, you hear me say this often, that uh, it's remarkable how relevant the Buddha's Dhamma is to, to what's occurring today. There's no difference in worldly conditions um, from 2,600 years ago till, till today. Um, and that likely will continue in this manner um, until human beings recognize and abandon ignorance. And, and that's not likely to happen. That, that's not a, um, that's, using the word a lot, that's not a dystopic view. It's simply um, facing reality. And one of the things that the wise Dhamma practitioner develops is the absence of fear in the face of what's actually occurring in the world. In other words, we don't overemphasize anything, but we're not afraid to look at reality. And one of the reasons why nothing has changed in 2,600 years is rather than look at what's occurring in the world, human beings would rather fall, rather fall back into an ideology that will continue ignorance of what's occurring and create very elaborate, and sometimes not elaborate, sometimes obvious scenarios as to why things are occurring and justifying what this, what this entire chapter and really what the entire Buddha Dhamma relates to is justifying hatred and violence. And it's always, it always comes down to how individuals and groups feel and how they justify that feeling by blaming others for the feeling. The essence of the Buddha's Dhamma is the, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is recognizing and abandoning my feelings and thoughts attached to those feelings that have arisen from ignorance recognizing that, practicing wise restraint when it arises, and abandoning that ignorance. And from this Dhamma teacher's point of view, that's the only way peace will prevail. So, and again, listen to these words. I'm, I'm going to attempt, you've heard me say this before, I'm going to attempt to not comment a lot, because I think the words mean so much in the collective, but I'm sure I'll have a few things to say. The Buddha's words from the Dandavaga, Dandavaga, abandon violence. Everyone fears violence and death. Understanding thus, the wise disciple does not harm others or cause others to harm. That's the beginning of that's the establishment of utopia rather than dystopia, isn't it? When we understand, and even right now, when we can understand the violence that's arising and understand where it comes from, we'll be able to speak the truth of that without, without reacting to it, without falling into the same hate that's developing the violence. Is that clear? That's what the Buddha's talking about. Through understanding the human condition, we cease the ability to hate people. Violence ends. The Buddha continues. Everyone fears, fears violence and holds dear life. Everyone. And that's a true statement today. So what about people that seem to not follow that? Now, there's always be individuals in the world that have true psychoses. But most of the people that are acting out of <coughs> ideological violence believe 
that they're actually helping others, or at least helping their own. But of course, it never is helpful in the long run, is it? Understanding thus, the wise disciple does not harm others or cause others to harm. One cannot attain happiness while oppressing others with violence. One will find happiness who does not oppress others with violence. When I look at, at what's occurring right there, some of the most unhappy people I come across are the ones that have fallen into ideological violence or supporting ideological violence. They're terribly unhappy. And of course, you could say, well, that's, that's the, the root cause of it. And of course it is. But who's responsible for happiness? Who's responsible for my happiness? You are. No! You are! And by the way, you have too much money, I want your money. You have too much, you have a smile on your face, I don't like it. You have food on your table, give me it. You're responsible for my happiness. You know what an absurd idea that is? Mm -hmm. And yet that's what we, as human beings, that's what we insist. It's what I insisted my entire life in less hurtful ways, but still hurtful at times, inadvertently, until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma. The greatest power I got from understanding the Four Noble Truths was that my happiness is dependent entirely on me. Think about that statement. It's true, at least from a wise Dhamma practitioner. And so what that resolves in is that every one of my thoughts will either contribute or take away from my own happiness, my own peace of mind. It's up to me. But I have to be willing to abandon violence in all its forms. It's not a great vehicle, though, for others to see because it really relies on them to come and see for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and there's just a, that the middle, the middle way that it's almost disdained by society because if you're not on the edges of the camps of <clears throat> where we are at any given subject, you're seen as uh, part of the problem. The moderate. Or yeah. I'm an independent yeah. or mm -hmm. I'm a practitioner. And unless someone sees for themselves, they'll only see that as a weak mm -hmm. you know, person. Well, they'll, they'll establish that person's identity. Yes. They will or change it, you yeah. know, in, in their view. Well, that's it. That's right. practitioner. Exactly. It's the way I'm seeing you that that has to change. Not not my view, yeah. your view. But as because a of... practitioner, I show restraint and I don't try to convince you that you're not seeing me correctly. So it's not a great vehicle for spreading it out in change. Yeah, the, 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 the original Sangha weren't evangelists in any way. <laughs> they went out to the public and they taught the Dhamma. That's it. That's it. I mean, and, and that, it doesn't mean that you don't recognize the emergence of ignorance in the world. That, that's just as important, but to do it in a, in a fearless but impersonal way. This is simply what's occurring as a result of your, if, if that person is willing. And the importance of right speech comes into play here. It, right speech is not just truthful speech. It's bound by honesty. It's founded in honesty, but it also has to be useful speech, likely to be taken 
in the way it's intended by the person or the group you're speaking to. And if not, you keep your mouth shut. You don't you don't evangelize about it because you don't know who you're talking to when you're doing that, do you? And, and in, in those days, you know, as part of the alms uh, system, more or less, um, those teachings, my feeling is, were always given as a response to a question yes. from the one who gave the alms. Yeah, there was a there was a there was a balance in that in that relationship. Mm -hmm. I believe what you're giving me is a value. Here's a bowl of rice, and and that that was really how the dhamma spread originally, and in a way, it's really how it's continued. You know, um, and the other thing that David mentioned is the eightfold path. The eightfold path is always called the middle way path. People take that as a pacifist way, that meaning that we never have any any kind of thought about anything. But the middle way, as described by the Buddha, is a middle way between extreme views. And imagine if we were all walking that middle way. And again, I'm not saying we should. It's not possible that we all should. But as wise Dhamma practitioners, we develop that middle way, and then we can remain free of harm, first to ourselves and then to others. And if anything, I, I think it's almost the most powerful way because you're seeing things dispassionately. And you don't, yes. you're not being pulled by self. You're, you're seeing things clearly. You're seeing things without passion. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you yes, can but... have an opinion and if a person is in need, <coughs> I'm not judging where he's coming from himself. I'm helping him with his shelter, his medical, his food. So I, I find it very powerful, the middle way. Yeah, it, that's the right word. It, it has enough power to overcome human ignorance, provided what David was saying, that the individual develops it. It's not something that is that can at all be... There, there could be... Half the people in the world could be actual Dhamma practitioners. And unless the other half wanted to have an interest in that and develop it, it would have no effect on them. The, because the Dhamma has to be developed individually. Like, there, obviously, there'd be a little bit more societal... Uh, impact that way, but it, it, an individual has to develop this. The individual has to recognize and abandon all causes of violence first within themselves and then outwardly. And we're not talking about, just to use what's going on today, we're not talking about burning down villages or, or shooting or killing other people. That's, the, that's the, the grossest example of violence. But little shreds of, of unrecognized hatred is still violence. When it emerges in your mind, it might not rise to the level of, of burning down someone's store, but it's just as hurtful to yourself and just as contributory, contributory to the overall hatred in the world. And so you heard me say often that the only way that this is going to end is for individuals to take to the Dhamma and wake up. Sometimes or often I say it, that the most loving thing I can do for my, if I'm really concerned about the conditions of humanity, and I have been since I was aware of humanity, I just didn't know what to do about it until I came across the Buddhist Dhamma, is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Because then at least I know that I'm not contributing to the hatred and violence in the world. It's the only way I can know that. And the and I can tell you that, and you've heard me say this in different ways, the, the power that I received that David just mentioned from the Eightfold Path is no longer having to second-guess my own motives, what I'm doing here. Because I know my motives are pure now. Because they're framed by the Eightfold Path. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes the Buddha refers to that as an inner poise. And it's that inner poise that is established in the middle way 
that allows me and otherwise Dharma practitioners to not lose their mind no matter what's occurring in the world. Let me continue. Again, look at the relevance of this. Angry speech causes harm. Retaliation can overcome the mind. You hurt me, now you have to hurt. Avoid speaking harshly and refrain from harsh retort. One approaches Nibbana, full human awakening, full human maturity. One approaches Nibbana, who restrains the tongue and abandons harmful speech. As a coward, I have trouble seeing it. As a as a cowherd drives cows with a staff, so too does aging and death drive the lives of people. <laughs> the fool <clears throat> does wrong while ignorant and is yet tormented by their hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds, like being burnt by a fire. I have to read that again because it, it, it has such a relevance to me and I think to many other people when you start thinking about your own being in the world. The fool does, does wrong while ignorant and is yet tormented by their hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds like being burnt by a fire. So there were many times in my life, and I'm, I'm sad to say, and that's really the right phrase, that I hurt people inadvertently from my own wrong views. And, and, and I was continued to be tormented by it. But I couldn't do any, anything about it. I couldn't sincerely apologize even for, I mean, I have I've apologized for a lot over the years. But in the moment, no matter how rotten I felt about my, my actions or even my thoughts, I couldn't change them because I was, that's the essence of clinging. Because I was clinging to the fabrication underlying that. That fabrication rooted in ignorance. As the Buddha teaches here, that's impossible. As David just said, it's impossible to change that clinging to ignorance unless you have the framework of the Eightfold Path. In many ways, this small chapter is the essence of the Buddha's Dhamma because it points directly to the quality of our mind in this moment. And it also points to the, to the resolution of hatred within ourselves in this moment. It's the only place that it can be attached, addressed. Inflicting violence on the innocent will bring one of ten states. And look at these ten states. They, they all arise. <clears throat> sharp, sharp pain, injury, illness, derangement, subjugation, ignorance. Uh, incarceration. Ah, that's right. Incarceration, thank you. Loss of family. And that doesn't mean loss of your, your family dies. <clears throat> It means you become ostracized from your family. Loss of family, loss of wealth, loss of, loss of shelter, and the worst of all, ongoing wandering and ignorance. Nakedness. Now, the Buddha, this, this references the kind of the, the gold standard of religious or spiritual achievement as exemplified by your, the way that you present yourself to the world. And one of the ways that, one of the, the very popular spiritual cults was um, a very ascetic practice. And one of the things is you didn't wear clothes, you didn't cut your hair, you didn't bathe, 
and that was that was somehow seen as being separated from the world. You you kind of overcome the world by rejecting the things of the world. But the Buddha recognized that's just putting on the robes of knowledge or the robes of understanding, much like putting on a T-shirt that we do today, isn't it? And there's our identification, or carrying a sign. This is who I am. But don't look inside. Nakedness, matted hair, filth, fasting, smearing oneself with ashes, nor self-torture cannot purify one's mind rooted in doubt and uncertainty. So again, we can do all the outward expressions that everyone else is doing to fix this thing inside of us that we can't stand about ourselves, and none of it's going to work. Why? Because it's, just, it's to use a phrase, it's just putting on the airs of understanding without doing any of the work. Without, again, as David pointed out, you should be teaching this class, David, without a hepasika, without coming seeing, seeing this for yourself. The Buddha did all those things. He, 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 when he left his home, he threw away his clothes, let his hair start growing, stopped bathing, and all the other ascetic practices, severe fasting. So he knows from his own direct experience what a waste of time that was for him, and that's exactly how he classified it. There's other sutras where he talks about that. The resolution of that is moderate in clothing, food, shelter, and medicine. Poise, that inner poise I just talked about, calm, well-concentrated, established in the Eightfold Path, and having completely abandoned violence towards all beings, including oneself, this one is a true Dhamma practitioner. So if you want to know how this fits, if you're a true Dhamma practitioner, read that one line and you know. This is the point. As rare as a thoroughbred avoiding the whip is a person restrained by modesty and beyond reproach. <clears throat> Like a thoroughbred driven by the whip, be strenuous and diligent with developing understanding. The disciple, well-concentrated, harmless, mindful of the four truths, will destroy suffering. Irrigators guide rivers, fletchers straighten arrows, carpenters shape wood. The disciple controls themselves. The disciple controls themselves. Thank you. That, thank, that last line is the essence of the Dhamma, isn't it? You hear me come back so often to wise restraint. And if I could say one thing that's changed my life and the quality of my life and my own happiness is wise restraint. Knowing when to restrain my thoughts, words, and deeds, but also knowing when it's wise to express myself Framed by the Eightfold Path. That's inner poise. It's also, you know, the phrase for that would be that having the courage of my con convictions. There's a responsibility that comes with developing the Dhamma. And again, I, I keep going back to, to David and, and his ongoing example. That responsibility is to example your own awakening, to be a presence, in the, a calm presence in the world. I'm going to bring this around. When people think of the Buddha, this is usually what they think of. Because that's what he exemplified. His whole Dhamma resolves in establishing and maintaining a calm and peaceful mind free of violence of any kind towards oneself or others. And what a wonderful way to live your life despite what's occurring in the world. Yeah, two, two sermons today. <laughs> um, let's go online and... Uh,
I want to hear from Josh first. Josh, how are you? Well, thank you. Hi, everybody. Hi, Josh. Thank you, John. It was a wonderful suda and a lot to chew on there. Uh, I think kind of what I got out of it was that it was really based upon our right action and how we, how we conduct ourselves. And somehow the, the word of civil disobedience kept coming up in my mind in terms of that if you uh, disagree with something strongly, uh, you don't have to go along with it, but you don't have to uh, fight it either. Uh, uh, so that's kind of where my mind is on that subject. I'm interested to hear from everybody else. Thank you. Very wise, Josh. Thank you. Um, Alex, how are you? Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Good to uh, see you. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, yeah, very interesting. I'm still... It takes me a while to process a lot of this. I, I, I go off in all sorts of different strands of thought, but um, uh, the one thing that kept coming up for me is, to be honest, with the Dharma recently, more than before, I'm just becoming more aware of my aversion to things that that I'm learning in that one one phrase that you said is that the Buddha realized that, that what he was doing before was a waste of time. And I find that really hard to um, accept or admit. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, what I need to work on is, um, or address is this sense of um, pride in like what I've done before. It's very hard for me to just that down as a waste of time um the way i've kind of been living my life it affects or, your um, sense of identity so that's just something that's going on for me at the moment thank you alex what were you going to say ron well the, the the reluctance that he feels is because his sense of identity has been upset yes and that brings the the fear mm -hmm. Yeah, the loss. It, and so, the, using the term and the word "waste of time" might sound harsh, and and I think it does to you, Alex. And I understand because I went through the same thing. It, uh, it it meant that the time that the Buddha sent spent doing those things did nothing to lead to his understanding. Now you could say, and people have said that to me. Well, at least you found out what it isn't. But I didn't. I didn't need to find out what it isn't. I needed to find out what it was. And all the time that I was doing that, I was identifying with the, the matted hair and the nakedness and the filth and the fasting, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the outward expressions of that became my practice rather than looking, rather than, none of that led to an inner understanding because it was really outwardly focused. I was putting on the robes rather than actually doing the work. And I... And, it took me a, quite a while to completely unravel and disentangle myself from the, the different traditions that I had developed over the years. So I understand what you're going through. And I would just tell you, as I say in almost every class, be very gentle with yourself. You said that your mind is going in different directions. That's a good thing. It might seem a little bit unsettling right now, but it means you're starting to make connections where they need to be made. 
and recognizing what you may at some point let go of. But continue to be very gentle with yourself and you'll get there. This is the Buddha's Dhamma, you know. There, and there's many reference to this. And it doesn't, it's not an accusation on you, and I'm not accusing you of why well, you just wasted your time. In the context yeah. of the Dhamma in this talk, it's a waste of time. Especially now. In other words, you can look at your past and say, well, I didn't really waste my time, I was living my life. And that's true. Now, as someone who wants to learn the, the Buddha's Dhamma, it would be a waste of time to continue those, those types of behaviors. So, I hope that helps, Alex. Yeah, no, it really helps. It really helps. It's good, to, it's good to express it, to be honest, and get some feedback. Yes, that's just um, what this Asanga is for. You know? Yes, David. Thank you. Thank you. Could the Buddha, if he was not a prince, and he did not set forth and realize each one of the things he followed, if he didn't come from where he was, would he have awakened if he was never a prince that was being kept in the palace? Wouldn't he have Boy, to experience what? that? Yeah, speculation a little bit. It, it's such a... Wow, excuse me. I mean this seriously, David. You want to take over the seat? Because I think, it, I think what... You're, uh, you're so think, right. I think what he's expressing is... Like, I came from a very little background, so I find myself fortunate because it's yeah. a clean slate. But... Ram and his experience mm -hmm. is this experience, and mm -hmm. he sees that it wasn't quite right, but he can't yes. discard it all because that's in fact what he is. But yes. it teaches him to be able to see what he has with the Eightfold Path and say, This is the true path, which is what the Buddha came to the same conclusion. The other extreme. The other. Um, what David's referring to is the Buddha grew up as one of the wealthiest children in the world at, during that time. And he referred to that after he left the palace. His father was a, a local king. He wasn't the king of India. There were probably hundreds of local kings. Might be referred to as even mayors or governors today. Um, he always referred to that as a confining space. So he had that experience of, of incredible wealth. There's stories of the Buddha, even, even at, as a teenager getting things that adults shouldn't even get. I don't want to get too deep into it. But his father was always always lavishing on his son. Again, I don't want to get too deep into that story. So the Buddha experienced that and he and when he left, he went into the matted hair, the filth, etc. He experienced the both of those extremes. Mm -hmm. That's how he developed the middle way between those extreme views that would drive you to find value in either great wealth or the, the reaction to the hatred of great wealth, because you, maybe because you can't get it, well, I'm not going to have anything. It's an extreme view. The middle view, what, and how does the middle view, what does it look like? It looks like an ordinary human life. It's neither this or neither that. You may be, um, you may have great wealth. But a middle way practitioner won't be affected by it at all. They won't see, it won't be a confining space. It doesn't matter our position as long as our minds are right. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ron. Anybody else on this? Seems like we're going to... Okay. Well, the one thing I wanted to say is that, that including the Buddha, we all have our... We come from somewhere that drives us to the Dhamma. Yes, we come from a place where 
we were basically unhappy. Mm -hmm. And uh, combine unhappiness with, uh, you know, a modicum of, of intelligence and the opportunity will bring you to the Dharma. And that those, but those backgrounds can be so varied. Yeah. Like my background, uh, one of the reasons that drove me to the Dharma, to, to so-called spirituality <coughs> at that time, was I thought my life was boring. And, and, and my whole background was boring and, and you know, it, it, I was drowning. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's just what drove me to the, to, to the dumb. Uh, yeah. there's, but it's, it's usually some form of unhappiness that yeah. can get you there. What's that? Unhappiness or disappointment, another word for dukkha. Yeah. And, and yes, and it is dukkha that drives you here. Yeah, but you, you I'll argue with one word you said, will drive you, because it doesn't drive everyone. No, that's true. It may drive you. Um, it's, what, it, it's what drove me. Um, when I was 19 years old, I was in my first rehab. It took two. <laughs> um, and for some reason, my sister, my older sister, brought me two books. One was the novel Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, or Hesse. <laughs> And the other was uh, Think on These Things by Jiddu Krishnamurti. If you haven't heard of mm. Krishnamurti, you should read him. But he's not, he's not a, an awakened Buddhist, but it's interesting. The point was that that started me looking at things in a slightly different way. And it took me another five or six years after that to finally sober up. But it, it influenced me in such a powerful way that it started me looking in a different direction because even I, I was 26 years old, I was newly sober i was at that time i had hair and i was young and healthy um, i had a pretty good business and i was still miserable and i knew after a few years of that misery that i was likely going to either drink or drug again because i was incredibly bored by my own misery i couldn't find an escape other than that other than the immediate uh, when you take a drink or a drug it's because right now i have to change the way that i'm thinking the way i'm feeling i couldn't get past that but it, it caused me to look hard at what I was missing. And so I started developing all these different Eastern religious practices and settled on a few. Uh, I even uh, became, uh, I took my vows and one Tibetan tradition and disavowed them pretty quickly. And it wasn't, again, until I finally came to the Buddhist Dhamma that I realized that what I was running away from was the one thing that I had to understand was <clears throat> unhappiness and disappointment. I wanted, I wanted my matted hair and my filth and my nakedness my, the robes that I was putting on, to solve the problem without changing the way that I was thinking. And of course, that can't happen, can it? And the Buddha went through that, and he realized that continually to grasp after something is just a continuation of an extreme view. There's no middle way there. So. But great, another great discussion. Let me get to... <laughs> i got to hurry up now. Um, Anthony, how are you? Oh, good, John. Um, uh, and, and Rob, you're anything but boring. <laughs> mm -hmm. so the, uh, the, what, this, what did he say? He said so he what this hard on it. is about is um, uh, learning to accept ambiguity and letting life unfold as as it should um, because it's when we it's when we're able to be free from those rigid beliefs that we can open up to other people and not um, uh, engage in angry speech and get angry speech back. And um, that's really not always an easy thing to do. 
I find no. myself struggling with it, particularly with politics, you know, where I, I just sit there and I want to hit that button and say something angry to somebody whose political views I disagree with. But, um, but it's necessary. Yeah. And um, uh, when I was listening to you talk before we started the class, and people were talking about how the mask protects other people, it was making me think like this suit that says angry speech causes harm and results in angry retorts. Mm -hmm. It's almost like wearing the mask. If we don't engage in the angry speech, we're protecting that other person from being angry, but they have to wear their mask too to protect us. And it's a, it's a delicate balance. It's not something that we carry out well because I think we instinctually want to default to that fear and position of, and getting angry with people whose viewpoints we don't agree with. Yeah. So this is yeah. like, to me, it was like a lesson in relational skills and oh. making society more communicative and just. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. The, uh, um, it's just an, an aspect of right speech, isn't it? But you have to understand right speech. Right. It has to be honest. It has to be useful. It has to be necessary. And it has to likely fall on ears that will hear it, that will listen. Mm -hmm. If not, you keep your mouth shut. And if you're not right. sure, it's usually best to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Um, Mateo, how are you? I'm gonna, and I'm going to try to move a little quicker. I, I keep having... I'm gonna, ride coming in about 25 minutes so you're going to hear you're probably not but i'm going to try to keep my commentary now to a minimum so we can get to all of you how are you mateo hi all good yeah and it's a funny coincidence because i was thinking exactly what anthony say about the mask so probably we we need a kind of a, uh, here in this sutra we need a kind of imaginary anti-violence mask mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a good one you know, maybe i just put right speech across it yeah <laughs> Um, as I, I was wondering, like, if probably a, a main way to eradicate violence in ourselves, probably it will, we need to eradicate our self yeah. in order to, to stop right. that. And yep. simply to say, but of course, it's very difficult. Yeah, it's, in, it's very thoughtful this, uh, and profound, this sutra. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Thank you, Matera. I said I wasn't going to comment. But that, if we eradicate fabricated views of self. It's saying the same thing that the that Matteo just said and the Buddha said 2,600 years ago. Thank you, Matteo. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, John. Good morning, Good morning everyone. There you are. Hi, um, Mary. <laughs> um, you know, just when you learn a little bit and you hear something like this, Suda, and you realize the power of words, um, you know, to hurt in the most subtle ways, um, you know, it's life changing. Um, it's these subtle aspects of the Dhamma, you know, when you're ready to hear what you hear, uh, because I'm, you know, as we all do, we enjoy listening to what other people are hearing and experiencing from the Dhamma. It's so rich what everybody has said today. Um, as usual, um, but really great contributions. Um, and it's a reflection of where each of us are in our own journey and our life. And, um, you know, it's just so powerful when you can make this a priority in your life, um, you know, and, and try to live by it. I mean, this is, right speech is just <laughs> one factor of so many, and it's yeah. so powerful. So 
Thank you for bringing it to us, John, and thank you everyone for all the comments. Just great stuff. And thank you, Mary, for joining us this morning. Good morning, David. Good morning, Karen. I'm good, thank you. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Kevin. I think that's Kevin, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> good morning. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful sutta. Uh, and, you know, I'll just say that it's just amazing how the entire Dhamma is woven into it. Yeah. And um, it's just, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And, and thank everybody for their comments as well. Thank you, Kevin. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. <clears throat> um, I had a, an ethical question that I'll ask you in an email because it's not terribly relevant. It's good about it, out of curiosity. Please. But, um, the thing I wanted to, to mention right now was kind of thinking of what Mary said. And what I'm thinking about is these tiny violences that we do to ourselves and others that aren't these overt acts, but they are, um, you know, that sort of uh, violent thinking um, and, uh, you know, putting yourself down for things yep. um, and then carrying that over into how you treat other people and doing them through the lens of your own anger with yourself. It's a profound understanding. That's exactly what it is. It's not so much the obvious violence. That's something that has to end, but that won't end until we stop those, that, that, those little minuscule aspects of pernicious violence that we have towards ourselves that really is rooted in inadequacy. Um, and the reason why I'm angry at you is because you're threatening my ina inadequate view of myself. It's really what it comes down to. Uh, for years, I've been trying to write this book, and maybe I'll get it done, maybe I won't. But the, the cause of all of this can be called self-loathing. That's the common human problem is we just don't think we're good enough. So we do all these things as compensation where the Buddha says, wait a minute, you're a human being. Being born is good enough. Being born is good enough. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. And that's really the conclusion that I came to. Being born was good enough. I'm having a human life. Let me live it in peace. So thank you, thank you for bringing that up. And I look forward to your, to your email. <laughs> Tim, good to see you this morning. Good morning, good morning, everybody, and everybody online. Um, Lewis starts off, this is the way I, I, I took this um, Dhammapada chapter. Understanding. What is the Buddha telling me to understand? He's telling me to understand that everyone fears violence and death. Yep. Everyone fears violence and holds dear life. Or life dearly. Whatever. So, that's empathy. Understanding. Yeah. And if we don't have empathy towards ourselves, compassion towards ourselves, we will remain deluded and not be able to understand the violence or the ill will or the hindrances, self-loathing, all those things that affect ourselves internally. So in this Dhammapada chapter, the Buddha basically discusses, like what David so perfectly described, was the, the development of the Eightfold Path and practicing rise restraint and remaining dispassionate and disenchanted with impermanent phenomena. And all that arises will pass away. Yeah. And those extremes reinforce these passions and the clinging and craving, which is desire, and as a practicing, as a Dhamma practitioner, learning and understanding, I try to recognize my wants and then ask myself, is, do I need it? 
And yeah. that goes right to that extreme thing of starving yourself and, and, and wearing filthy clothes or living in a palace. Yeah. Is this, I would have, this may be what I want, but do I need it? Huh. And so the Dhammapada, again, I mean, it's, it's very, you know, all over the place, but when we all talk about it, it comes together as, as is what the Buddha is saying, is that, is, is that a calm and peaceful mind Development of the Eightfold Path, understanding the Four Noble Truths, and recognizing the three marks of existence, will will allow us to live in a, a, a calm and peaceful existence. Yeah, one thing I would I would argue with you is you call yourself a Dhamma practitioner. You're you're a wise Dhamma practitioner, Tim. <laughs> really well said. Thank you. Can I just mention something about what, what Tim just said? Please. Um, Big distinction between what you need and what you want. Mm -hmm. and that's a really interesting tool you can use for the moderation that it's all about. Yes, the, the Buddha always, not always, he often said every human being needs four things. Food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. Obvious, isn't it? But when we need more than we need, as, as Tim just pointed out, we're stuck in eye-making. We're, we're stuck. We're, and, and, and for me to think that I need the, the, the hut with the most coconuts in it is really, as you said, Adam, a violent thought towards myself because it's rooted in inadequacy and fear and all the rest of it. But to be happy with having five coconuts, you know, and a, a few rags to keep myself warm, that's enough. You know? And so I want to thank, thank Tim for, for saying that. Yeah, I do too. Thank you, Tim. Hello, Becky. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hey, Becky. Okay. This is, this class was just such a beautiful experience of having the whole Dhamma sort of disentangled and laid out mm -hmm. in front of you. What, what everyone has said, I, real, I learned so much just in this class, listening to what everyone said. And really everyone was saying the same thing in a different way. Tim and Adam especially liked what you guys said. Well, everyone. Yeah. Um, and the idea of, of those little sort of, what did you call them? Hatreds or violences or, some, or um, shreds that we have. Yeah. Um, the Buddha is, the Buddha is saying this is causing your dukkha, your distress. Yes. And when when you get a glimpse of when your ignorance dissipates for an instant, and you get a glimpse of what you are actually doing to yourself. Yes. It is so powerful, but it's it's extreme. I think for me, it's 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 very fleeting, and you just you just have to keep coming here and realizing that everyone is going through the same process, and it's just so it's just so incredibly great and. <laughs> I love the fact that it's an individual responsibility. Yeah. 
that that you can do it and only you can do it yeah. that to me is the most powerful powerful thing about the dharma Boy, another another wise Dhamma practitioner there. The uh, again, you touched on some. The, the the goal there is a goal to Dhamma practice, which you know some have said no goal. There is a goal, and that goal is to awaken, to develop full, full human maturity. But it doesn't mean we must. Mm. Do you do you understand? All that we must do as Dhamma practitioners, well, you don't have to must do anything. But if you want to be a Dhamma practitioner, you practice a Dhamma. When if you get to that point, fine. But it's 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 the it's the most loving and compassionate way that I can live my life, isn't it? So it's not that I get to an awakened state. It's that I live the Dhamma in this moment. And you could say when you do that, what you just described, Becky, is an awakened right view, isn't it? The quality of my mind right now. It's not the quality of my mind when I might lose my mind. That doesn't mean that we're not practicing the Dhamma because the wise Dhamma practitioner in the next thought takes a breath, and comes back. They regain the quality of their mind. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. Um, God, everything that needed to be said is being said here. <laughs> um, it's, and it, it, you know, the, the, the subject, you know, being, being harmful or being harmless is like as current as we could, as we could get. Um, and I actually I, I used I used the, the sutta here um, because I was and this is a funny thing I was I was bothered at, at one point um, you, you send out a, a little a text between me and Matt and, and, and yourself yeah. and um, I realized that um, it really bothered me so. I, I struggled to come up with um, with a good response and uh, I went through quite a few in, in a very short term short time and realized that um, they were not harmless and um, that unless I could, I could frame my response in the Dharma, that uh, it wasn't appropriate to, to do that. Uh, that's why I sent back, but just, but, you know, the quickest thing I could answer that was to stick with the Dharma because um, I couldn't frame it in the Dharma. You did? Well, I did. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that, uh, and, and the soup speaks to all of this. Yeah. Um, that, um, getting involved in in disputes is is very harmful yep. because it it leads immediately to uh, expressions of ill will, yep. and um, which is good if you can see it because then then you can you can root them out. Thank you so much for that. And, that, and look, we should have lunch one day on that whole subject. But it, it, Ron was talking about being disputatious doesn't um, is not something that we can't do. It just means we need to do it wisely. Mm -hmm. And saying that, pointing out what's occurring, is outside of the 
framework of the Dhamma is part of Dhamma practice. Um, the, reason I, the reason that is, is that the, the world is ideologically connected or clinging to their own views, and it manifests in certain ways. And sometimes the best way to present a Dhamma teaching is to say, look at how it's manifested here. And that's kind of what that was about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't something that I would have said to everyone. I, we, Matt and Ram and I had a little email exchange. And if it was outside of that, I probably wouldn't have said what I said. Mm-hmm. Because it would have been taken, or easily could have been taken wrongly. So, as you develop the Dhamma, you'll understand that even more. But I think you're all practicing that. Um, the last thing I'm going to say, and i got to kind of close quickly. Um, this has been a remarkable class. I kind of thought it would be. Um, I'm going to make a, a highlight of this on the website and include this and probably a little bit more commentary on it um, and, and just put it up there because it, it is so relevant mm-hmm. um, and it follows in some of the commentary, commentary, commentary I've had, uh, Salvation Free Buddhism, Emerging from Lockdown, etc., that are more commentary than suttas, but it fills in, fills in some of the points that were probably or possibly missed in those, but they're, it's important. Um, th- I think this, if you could take all the important teachings, Dependent Origination, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, and this chapter are, are so important because it explains everything. Uh, again, it was just a remarkable class. We'll close with uh, Metta as we always do. So again, just take a moment to be mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. Unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud of demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Again, thank you all for a wonderful class. Peace. Peace. See you all. Thank, thank you, John. Thanks, everybody. See you all Tuesday. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.